So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13, through 13, we're going to be thinking through and talking about deacons. And I'm glad that what Kevin did when he read these verses, he read in the ESV, because I want you to hear the difference between the ESV version and when I read it in the legacy, just to, to gain understanding and how translations can be different. See, deacons and the people who are called deacons, at least within Baptist life, they have an identity crisis. They have no idea. They seemingly have no idea of who they are and what they're supposed to do. And much of the reason for this is that we don't know who we are and what is required of us as slaves of God. And then what is required of those that he has called as servants to his slaves. So as my goal today, to be able to understand the office of deacon and who can hold this office and the requirements for those who hold this office and what they're supposed to do. And for this reason, before we begin unpacking the verses from 1 Timothy 3, I want to look first at the verses that are historically understood to be the genesis concerning the form and the function of deacons. I'm talking about Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Most of us know that account. The 12 apostles telling the disciples to select seven men, which they then do. And the question that we need to ask ourselves about that text is this. Is that account, is Acts chapter 6, the normative operation and the selection of deacons? And is Acts chapter 6 actually speaking of the office of deacon? So turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6, beginning in, in verse 1. Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was grumbling against the Hellenists, or by, from the Hellenists, against the Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this need. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And this word pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procreus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they stood before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So, the letter, the one that's written to Timothy, the one that we know of as 1 Timothy, it was written about 30 years after the events of Acts chapter 6. And in the letter that we know as 1 Timothy, Paul speaks of two offices in what we know as chapter 3. And he speaks of these offices as if they were already known. He doesn't begin by telling Timothy, hey, Timothy, 
So within the church, there's these two offices. He doesn't start telling him, okay, there's only these two offices, and then telling them about those offices. He speaks of those offices as if Timothy already knew that these two offices within the church existed. So what we're told in Timothy and in Titus is not that there are these two offices. We're told how to determine, both here in 1 Timothy and in Titus, how to determine if a man is qualified to fill either of these offices. And for this reason, we know that these offices had to already be known within the church. And if they're normative within the church, then where do they come from? I mean, think this one through. We know from Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed to us belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do the words of the law. God has been very exacting in the essentials concerning those things that pertain to humans, to salvation, and his church. Everything from why all things were created, as told to us in Revelation 4.11, for his glory, and what we must do to become his slaves, believe, repent, obey, Mark 1.15, through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, John chapter 6. We are told that he gave all things to his son, who is the head of the church, that all things are done for his church, Ephesians 1.22. His church is his body, the fullness of him here on earth. But where are we ever told of the duty and offices within the church? Or are we told of them? Because if there were elders and deacons prior to the letter of 1 Timothy being penned and distributed, where did the office come from? And how did the church know who was to fill these offices and what they were actually supposed to do? Or were the disciples just making it up on the fly? So this brings us back to those Acts 6 verses. Are those verses from Acts 6 normative in describing how the office of deacon is filled and even what the, deacon, what the office or the duties of the deacon are? Well, there's a rule in biblical interpretation worth knowing and understanding. You might want to write this one down. Implicit teaching of the Bible is just as authoritative as explicit teaching. Let me say that again. Implicit teaching is just as authoritative as explicit teaching. So let me explain to you what explicit and implicit means. Jesus is the Son of God. That's an explicit teaching as told to us in Matthew 26, 63, and 64. And Jesus is God. This is also an explicit teaching. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1, 1. God is one. That's explicit. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. And we all know that the Holy Spirit is God, right? That's not within question within Orthodox Christianity. But we know this only through implicit teaching, found in places such as John chapter 14, verse 17, and Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read those Acts verses. Listen to how we know that the Holy Spirit is God and what implicit teaching is. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Verse 3. While it remained unsold, 
Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So do you see how that works? You, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. Implicit teaching. The Trinity, scriptural. It's one of the foundational truths concerning our God, but it can only be known through implicit teaching. Church membership is biblical and only can be known through implicit teaching. The regular principle of worship, family integrated churches, baptism of believers only, all these things are in the implicit teaching of the Bible. And since the word elders and deacons aren't used in Acts chapter 6, there are those that say that this is not speaking of either one of these offices. But I'm confident by that truly looking at the account that's given to us in Acts chapter 6, we will be able to see that the incident that is recorded there is given us, listen to me on this, the incident that is recorded in Acts chapter 6 is given us for the sole purpose of through implicit teaching, showing us that there are two offices, the office of elder and the office of deacon, and even what their primary functions are. And since the office of elder is first described, and then the duties of an elder are laid out, I'm going to tackle that one first. In verse 2 of Acts 6, we read, it's not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And then in verse 4, we're told, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. But how can we know that the apostles were speaking of the office of elder there are not just apostles? Because this is exactly what the rest of Scripture says that the duties of an elder are. James, the brother of Jesus, he spoke of the duties of the elder. James 5, 14 and 15, he said, If anyone among you is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And he, if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. So just in the, as in the first book of 1 Timothy, faith is being highlighted here by James. But we need to understand what faith is because there are some within Christianity that have used that James 5.15 verse as a magic wand, a magical mystery, mystical power that you can wield to remain healthy and wealthy. But that's not biblical faith. It's important for us to understand what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is defined for us in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then Hebrews 11.6, we're told of the importance of saving faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for, for he who draws near to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And this is what faith is. Trusting is Jesus as your Savior. And have you done this? Have you been given eyes to see that you're a sinner? Do you know in your conscience that you are not right with God? Have you been given the ability to see Christ as glorious, the righteous Son of God who died in your place, rose again to seal your place in Him for all eternity? Because that's faith. If you understand that that is faith, and you must act now in your free will, you must act in faith. You must confess with your mouth that which you believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, and you will be saved. And that's what James 5 is speaking about. And it is this faith 
that was the attribute that describes the overarching character trait of that elder as told to us in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Someone who lives under the rule and the obedience to the word of God. And that word is once again tied in with an elder in verse 15 of James 5. James said that this man, the elder, is a man of faith and a man of prayer. Paul, who wasn't at that Acts 6 meeting, years later when he was sailing back to Jerusalem in order to be arrested in prison so that he could write his prison epistles, on the way there he stopped briefly at Ephesus, a place where he had planted a church and installed elders. And this is what he had to say to them on that last visit with them. We're told in Acts chapter 20, Verse 17, now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And this is what he said to them, beginning in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And that word translated to shepherd in verse 28, it's actually a literal word for a person who keeps sheep. What's the job of a shepherd? Make sure the sheep are fed well, protected from harm, and are healthy. And what is the thing that Paul warns these shepherds of concerning the flock? Bad food. Being fed to the flock by men who he called savage wolves. But you're thinking, David, I've read Acts, and if you read Acts chapter 15, verse 4, you'll see that what we're told in, of Acts 6 can't be actually speaking of the office of elder, because it says that Paul came back to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles and the elders there, and you're right. But having said that, one of the men who was at, at that Acts 6 meeting, Peter, who was undoubtedly an apostle, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Peter knew that there was a difference between an apostle and an elder. He understood the difference. But what, is he, what he is doing here is telling these men who were elders, fulfill your calling. Do the work that you've been set apart to do, just as I have done. You see, just as the office of deacon contains some of the qualities of the office of elder, the office of elder contains some of the qualities of the office of apostle as well. And in those first Peter 5 verses, we're given that word again, shepherd. But here that word shepherd is probably in translated in the ESV as teach or feed and not shepherd because the Greek word means all three of these things. And he tells them how they are to act as they feed or teach or shepherd them. He says, overseeing them, not under compulsion, but willingly, according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, for yet as lording it over them, <clears throat> nor yet as lording it over them, or those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. Key phrase right there, being examples to the flock. You see, we think it is so bold of Paul for him to say, follow me as I follow Christ. We think that is such a bold statement, and we shouldn't. 
Because this is what an elder primarily is supposed to be doing. Teaching and praying. Praying and teaching. And their life is to be a lesson for the scriptures that they teach as they run their race with endurance, the one that is set before them, fixing their eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Paul knew the importance of the church. He planted churches. That was his life. He went and he spoke and he planted churches and installed elders, elders in all of them. He did this with Timothy, and he did this with Titus. And what was the final exhortation by Paul to the elder Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. So scripture is implicitly clear that the duties given in Acts 6, teach and pray, those that the 12 said that they were to do, this is the primary duty of the elder as well. And for this reason, we can know that what is happening in choosing the men to serve the flock is normative for the office of deacon as well. Now let's look at the qualifications that are given to us in 1 Timothy 3. Verses 9 and 10. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Deacons likewise. This is to mean that the standard set for the men who hold the office of elder is the same standard that is set for the men who hold the office of deacon. They are supposed to be men of faith, as said there at the end of verse 9. Holding to the mystery of the faith. Not holding to the mystery of faith. Because that the in this phrase is important. Because faith in and of itself is worthless. Because there's many people in this world. In fact, most people in this world, they have faith in something. And some of them are very genuine and devout in their faith. Like the agnostics. Or the trust the science people. Or the equality people. They are all very serious and sincere in their faith. But their faith is worthless. It is the faith that is invaluable. And the faith is shorthand for what is said and what we looked at back in Hebrews um, 11 verses. And this is the faith that they must hold, these men must hold to with a clear conscience, meaning that they're not iffy on the fundamentals of the faith, as evidenced by the list of qualities that their lives are to demonstrate and are given to us here in verses 9 and 10. Their lives prove what is actually true about them. The faith that they hold to, that is used as the litmus test for the qualities given right before it. They're dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, which is why these men must also first be tested. Before being considered for the office of deacon, these men must be tested. And the testing that is being spoken of here, that which is said in verse 9, is that their lives are supposed to be one that's marked by faith 
and obedience, which is exactly what those qualities of verse 9 speak about. And this is the fundamental in Christianity, something that we all need to understand. Because what Paul Washer has rightly said so often, you can't be impacted by a semi-truck and remain as you were before. We all agree with that, right? But even more so, you cannot be impacted by the Spirit of God and remain as you were either. Silly, nonsensical people, they will become dignified. Liars will be convicted, and they will learn not to be double-tongued. Drunkards will forsake that spirit for the Holy Spirit. And the thieves, they will be convicted of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and stop stealing. And this is what those qualifications mean in verse 9. But they're not just for the man who's being considered for the office of elder or deacon. The word that is translated there in deacon, in verse 8, it's used in over 30 times in the New Testament. Think to yourself, how many times does the word deacon in English ever actually show up? But the same word in Greek is used 30 times. And it's translated in deacon the three times that it is, simply because it's actually talking about an office. But the meaning of that word the description of the one who is called a deacon, the meaning is the same in all the instances that it's used. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We know what he's speaking about here, right? His death, burial, resurrection, And then he says in verse 25, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternity. Who is that speaking about? Some Christians? Special ones? Or all of us? It's speaking about those that are the fruit of his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he explains more about that. He said in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my deacon will be also. If anyone serves me, deacon, the Father will honor him. Just as with elder, what is being stressed are the qualifications given for that man who holds this office. They are all summed up in what is said that they are to be beyond reproach or approach. But please hear me on this. Because if you look at the qualifications for an elder and the qualifications for a deacon and you don't apply these qualities to your own life, if you think that it's okay to live a life that does not demonstrate these qualities, you are sadly mistaken because there are no super Christians. There are none that are radically saved in comparison to us normal Christians. Those categories are nothing more than a lie from the pit of hell. The difference, the single difference between an elder and a deacon and the rest of the flock, remember that, the rest of the flock is not how much of a sheep they are because a sheep is a sheep is a sheep is a sheep. The difference is only found 
in the administration of the working out of the gifts that God has placed on each of them. These men are set apart. And because they are men of faith, obediently submitting to the word of God, which is exactly what should be expected from all of the congregation, and they are proving that they are deacons because they are already serving the body before they're called to the office of deacon. Do you recall the qualifications that the apostles stated for the office that would be, for the man that would be affirmed to this office? Back in verse 3 of Acts chapter 6, they said, Therefore, brothers, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this need. The good reputation spoken of there is the same as the testing that is spoken of here. These men were seen doing that which they were already called to do, being servants to the slaves. And what we're told in verse 10, that they are, then we are told in verse 10 that they are to be beyond reproach. The word used in verse 10 for beyond reproach is, the same, is not the same word, sorry, as the word that is used in verse 2 of this chapter concerning elders above reproach. The word there in verse 2 describing elders as above reproach only used three times in the Bible, all in this letter, and all meaning to being found in Christ, being rooted in and founded upon Christ. But the word that Paul used here in describing the deacon as being beyond reproach, that is different than that for the elder. And it's found only five times in the Bible. Once here, twice in Titus, twice, Titus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And then in 1 Corinthians, verse, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8. I want to note one thing with you guys, though. Very often... When I use scripture references, I don't just throw scripture references out at you. I'll read the scripture to you. And I read the scriptures surrounding them as well. And I do this because it's so easy to validate my position just by saying, well, this is what scripture says. But I don't desire to be right. I would desire that you know the scripture and what God says, which is why I read the verses. And since context is king, when a verse falls in the middle of a sentence or thought, you should read that whole sentence or thought. Which is why when I read 1 Corinthians verse 1 through or verse 8, that's the end of a sentence. So I'm going to have to start at the beginning. Verse 4. So 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 4, Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Jesus Christ. Hang on to this again. This is going to explain what beyond reproach actually means. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Jesus Christ, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all the word and with all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, beyond reproach in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The same thing that is said in Colossians 1, verse 22. And like with that Corinthians verse, I'm going to read the whole sentence it's found in. This time it's only two verses. Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. Although you were formerly alienated in enemies in mind and in evil deeds, verse 21, who is that speaking of again? Us. 
before Christ, right? But now, He reconciled you in the body of His flesh through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is how that man who is being considered for the office of deacon is beyond reproach. The same manner, in the same way that all disciples, all saints, all Christians are beyond reproach. It is in Christ. And Colossians 1.22 says that Christ Jesus makes you beyond reproach. But we need to understand who that you is. Because if you ask people, who, even people who call themselves Christians, who is this Bible written for? Is it written for all people? Or is it written only for a specific group of people called Christians? By and large, they will tell you the Bible was written for mankind. Which is why the all of the Bible confuses them. Because they will say that all means all, and that's all all ever means. And this is why they think that the blood of Christ was shed for all people. But who is it that Jesus makes beyond reproach? Those that he died for. Not all people for all time. And not only the A-team within the elect. All people. Any that are in the Lamb's Book of Life, He has made them beyond reproach. And what verses 10 is telling us here is that only what is being stated here is only the elect should be allowed to serve within church. And this is why, when speaking about deacons, Paul begins with likewise, because a thing expressed for an elder concerning the outward manifestation of their inward calling and election of God in their lives, the faith through submission and obedience must likewise be found in those that are being considered for the office of deacon. They must be saved, and the salvation must be fleshed out through their willing submission and obedience to the word of God. And this is the testing of the man for the office of deacon and elder. They must be men of faith, as said in verse 9, holding to the mystery of the cross of Christ with a clear conscience. This means they have to be utterly convinced of who it is they believe in, that they don't waver in the truth of the substitutionary atonement of, and the sacrifice of Christ. And now we can come to verse 11. When it was read earlier from the ESV, it said, their wives. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Smack dab in the middle of explaining the qualifications for a deacon. And again, this is not given for the elder. It's just for the deacon. There's this little gem of verse 11. And it begins with that word, woman. And in Greek, the same word that is used for woman and wife is the same word. So there's no denying that the female is being spoken of here. But what is being said here? We have three options. One is that a woman can be a deacon. The second option is that this is speaking of the deacon's wife. And then there's a third option. Speaking of a woman who serves under the deacons. We're going to tackle all three of them quickly. The first one that we're going to tackle is that of a deacon's wife. 
And the reason that this cannot, cannot be what this means is that it would be placing a stricter qualification on the deacon than it does on the elder. And there's no biblical warrant for that. But even more compelling than that is the fact that the Greek, the Greek syntax and the wording there will not support this translation, especially when you look at verse 12. What the Legacy Standard Bible has translated in English is exactly what the Greek says. And the translators remained faithful to the original text, and they didn't try and make it easy to understand. We have to allow the context to actually drive the meaning of that word. And the context in context will not support it being translated as wives. So option two is out. Not a deacon's wife. What then of option one? That a woman can be a deacon. When you read this, when you think that, especially in relationship to Romans 16.1, seems like it's a slam dunk. Romans 16.1 says this, Now I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, deacon, of the church which is in Chentria. Sure seems like that supports that theory. Because Phoebe is an undoubtedly a woman's name. And this was not a confused, sinful man parading around as a woman using a woman's name. This person had two X chromosomes. The word used here for sister in Romans 16.1 is feminine. And then that word that is translated as servant, that is masculine. It's the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 3 to describe this office. So it seems like case closed, slam dunk. But what about option three? I want to think about that one before we make up our mind. You see, in verse 2 of Romans 16.2, in talking about Phoebe, we're told why Paul commends our sister Phoebe. He says that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you may help her in whatever matter she may have need of. For she herself has also been a benefactor of many, and of myself as well. So Phoebe was a woman who did things that she might need help with when she got to the Roman church. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is this, what things? And that can be answered through scripture and through historical context. You see, the culture of the first century, men and women were divided. There was a separation between the sexes, one that the early church actually held to. But this didn't mean that Christian women were not expected to be above or beyond reproach, or that they weren't needed within the body. They were, and they led. But listen how God, through Paul, instructs women to lead. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be slandered. That list sounds a lot like that list given to us in 1 Timothy 3.11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossip, temperate, faithful in all things. 
And when we're given that list of qualifications given to us in 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10, for a woman who would be actually be getting care and assistance from the church as a widow, we're told there, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been made the wife of, or having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, if she has been, if she's brought up her children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in affliction, if she has devoted herself to every good work. Younger widows, under 60, told, marry, have children, older women, they are given a list of qualifications that, again, are much like the same list given here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. Heading back to Acts chapter 6. Those men that were selected to care for those widows in that church, they would have never cared for those widows in that church. Matter of fact, they weren't expected to. Listen to Acts 6.3 once again. Therefore, brothers, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. Same qualifications as 1 Timothy 3. Whom we may put in charge of this need. The apostles there were speaking to men that they called brothers. This is not a generic term. It's masculine only. And they tell these men, select seven men. Again, a very specific word meaning male only. And these seven men are not said that they are going to do this work. They're put in charge of this work. These men would have never personally cared for these widows, for these women. Not because it was beneath them, because they were submitted to the word and desired to remain above reproach. They would have not personally cared for the widows because they desired not to give the appearance of evil. They would have had qualified women care for them on behalf of them. And on behalf of the church, and I know you're thinking, how archaic, how sexist, how silly that men and women are to be separate. And yet we still all understand the importance of avoiding the very appearance of evil, even in our own day. The qualification for elder is gender specific. It's male only. All of the words used to describe the person who holds it are male-specific. And in verse 8, where the qualification of deacon, or where deacon begins, we are told that they are likewise to hold to that. In other words, what applied to those verses above, to the elders above, also applies to them. Only male terms used are used to describe elders. And then male terms are used to describe deacon. And then in verse 11, a feminine word is for woman is used, and qualifications that are given. But then, hard on the heels of that, Paul doubles back on the qualification for deacon and nails the lid on the coffin of women being deacons. In verse 12, he says, deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own households well. Again, deacons, male gender word, must be only one woman man. This is the same qualifier used for the elder. What is Paul saying concerning the woman then? Not that there's an office of deaconess, and not that a woman can serve as deacons, but only that there's a need for women who have been proved to be true saints by their actions, who have been called and equipped to serve the body, and they do so 
under the care and supervision of the deacons and elders. We have these kind of women in our congregation. They don't desire a title. In fact, if you tried to give them a title, they would run in the opposite direction. And how much worse off would this church be if they weren't serving in the gifting that the Lord has given them? Ladies, think how worse off you would be if they didn't act in their gifting. Not only would this place be a shambles, but so much of the ministry that happens to that other half of the congregation that the elders will not engage personally with, they would just be malnourished and undercared for. Women serve under the care of the deacons and the elders, not as deacons and not as elders. In verse 12, it's the same qualifier as that which is given concerning the man who's being considered as an elder, that they must be the husband of one wife, and they must lead in their children and their household well, as evidenced through Scripture and as fleshed out last week. Husband and one wife means that they are married to one woman only. They're not polygamous, and that they've been faithful to that one woman for a period of time and that they can control their actions in that relationship just as they can in their relationship with their children. They can make demands on their children that are biblical. They should do this. They must do this. But we all must acknowledge that we cannot control the actions, the thoughts, or the feelings of anybody else. We have a hard time controlling ourselves. We as husbands and as parents, we must, we are forced to live a life of faith. We must understand that it is God who is holding our marriage together, not us. It is God who is wooing our children to him, not us. It is God who actually does these things. We need to understand that it's only God that is actually protecting or keeping our marriage together. Yes, we have our part to play, and we must, but at the end of the day, it is God who is ultimately sovereign over our children, over our spouse, over our marriage, and even us. But what are deacons supposed to do? Deacons serve the slaves of God. That doesn't sound too glamorous. But look at verse 13. Look at the reward that is promised to the deacons. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So let's consider why this is. Because so often we, and even those that are deacons, we think that their job is just one of practical service making sure the building gets taken care of and the benevolence happens. And yes, in this realm, they do oversee practical service, but the practical services of eternal and spiritual value. Elders may be watching over and will be held responsible for the souls that are in their care, but it's the deacons. They are spiritually building up the church through serving them and teaching them and encouraging them to serve each other. They reflect Christ. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 20, verse 25 through 28? He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them, but it's not this way among you. 
Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, deacon, servant, doulos, slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is the high standing of the deacon. And this is the great boldness that they obtain for themselves. They are reflecting Christ to the body of Christ for the glory of God. And deacons are not super Christians, nor are they elders. Every one of us are fatally flawed sinners who have been saved by a wonderfully gracious God. It is through salvation that we individually are made part of the church, that he is physic- that, that this is his physical manifestation here on earth. And we're all under the same commandment, obey through faith. And as members of this church, we have all been given a part to fill in this body. We are likened to, the church is likened to the body of a person's body in 1 Corinthians 12. And we, each of us here have specifically been given gifts for the body. This is the thrust of Ephesians 4.11. He himself gave some as apostles, a prophet, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. See, God chose you before the foundation of the world to be his church. And he has chosen to give you specific gifts according to his measure, gifts that are supposed to be made manifest in the church. Do you know what your gift is? Do you know what part of the body you are? Are you a finger, a toe, an eye? If you don't serve the church, how are you ever supposed to know what your spiritual gift is? By taking an online spiritual gift test? It's through being the body. It's through serving the church. This is how and where you will discover how God has gifted you. And it's in the church that you will prove, you will be able to prove and test that gift. Ephesians 4.11 says that elders and teachers are gifts to the church, but we are a gift just as all other gifts are. And they're all given, we are all given for a specific reason, that which is told to us in verses 12 through 16, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine and by the trickery of men or by craftiness and deceitful scheming but speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is christ from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part this is you if you're a member of this church And it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Yes, we must hold the men who are in the offices of elder and deacon to a high standard. The high standard that God has placed on them. And they must reflect the God that has saved them. And their lives should be practically reflections of the qualities of a man who is under submission to the word of God. And we should hold each other to the same standard as well, though. 
because the same standard is given to all that are redeemed of God. The major difference, again, is that their lives will reflect the call and the gift of the Lord. The elder will have the ability to teach because they have been given a love for the word. And the deacon will have the ability to serve well because they have been given a love for the word. But each of us have all been given the gift for the body of Christ. And we should all walk in them because we have all been given a love for the word. All for the glory of God. Let's pray.